Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intelligence, forecasts, and success strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Hey, we really appreciate you being with us, whether you're on YouTube, iTunes, one of the radio stations around the country, or the show website, CREshow.com. This segment is brought to you by Bull Realty, commercial real estate, asset, and occupancy solutions. Visit bullrealty.com. Well, we have an interesting show for you today. We're going to talk about commercial real estate lending trends 2017. Now, this is a report that's just come out from the National Association of Realtors, and it's a great report. We'll put a link to the website on the website page for the show so you can read the report if you like. And please welcome my guest. It's George Ratu. He's Director of Quantitative and Commercial Research with the National Association of Realtors. George is joining us on Skype. George, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Michael. It's very good to be here with you. And uh, if you could start us out with uh, volume of sales and, you know, what's happening in commercial real estate. And then and we'll kind of talk about uh, what's happening on the lending side because it certainly impacts uh, the business, doesn't it? You're absolutely right. And, in fact, we've been in a very interesting market environment over the last year and a bit. Um, as commercial uh, real estate sales, we've watched the volume after a nice ramp-up period over the 2010-2018 period. We watched the sales volume actually begin in 2016, both globally. So global investments were down by double digits, but in the U.S., uh, investment uh, sales volume was also uh, down in each of the four quarters, including this this last uh, quarter, the first quarter of 2017. Interestingly. Um, that does not necessarily uh, apply the same way across the entire valuation spectrum. We've, in fact, as you know, we've have large cap markets generally aggregated at two and a half million dollars uh, and higher per transaction, and then we have small cap markets below that threshold. A lot of times, secondary, tertiary markets um, deal volume in smaller markets. Uh, in fact, in 2016, had very good trajectory. In in essence, uh, based on our data. We saw sales volume increase with each successive quarter. However, 2017 first quarter, we saw the first uh, year-over-year quarterly decline uh, where small cap uh, sales volume dropped by a little over 4%. So um, the markets which have been diverging for the better part of 2016 seem to be converging uh, at the beginning of 2017. It remains to be seen if that um, is just a, a one-quarter instance or if that trend uh, continues. And what do you think is impacting uh, these sales volume changes? Well, I think there are, in essence, two factors. One is is obvious um, that uh, on a macro scale, a lot of commercial investors have, in essence, hit the pause button. Uh, so they are taking a look at global economic slowdown. They're looking at, at uncertainty in this last year, specifically for the U.S. investors, obviously the presidential election provided quite a bit of, of uncertainty with the election in November. A lot of that uncertainty subsided. However, we've had uh, at least a quarter and a bit of um, uh, expectations not being met on the part of, of obviously the administration, legislative activity and so on. The other main factor that I would point to is inventory. Um, and we know that in some of the, uh, the, the top markets, there's been a shortage of inventory, particularly in class A uh, space, but even in small cap markets where we survey our own members, we ask them, what's your number one concern 
and they've been noting an inventory shortage for at least a year and a half. And is that inventory shortage more related to residential or commercial? This is, well, we actually have uh, obviously an inventory shortage on both ends, but I've been mostly addressing commercial. Right. So um, we obviously have about um, 70,000 commercial members whose primary specialties is commercial, and it's those members who have been um, having to work through this inventory shortage problem um, as much as obviously uh, the residentials have. Okay. And George, how much are the regulatory changes that kind of came in, in uh, last year, especially for the banks, uh, impacting maybe the slowdown or impacting commercial real estate uh, lending? Well, I think in the small cap space, that's particularly um, um, an issue. And you're right, you pointed out high volatility commercial real estate um, regulation that came out of Basel III uh, was implemented, which actually requires banks to hold 150% uh, of, of uh, their loans made for commercial real estate, particularly um, the ADC loans, uh, construction and development. Um, so I think that in and of itself is, is impacting some of the activity, in, especially in small cap markets. The other thing that I think is worth mentioning is the fact that with lending and, and debt um, financing for commercial deals in small markets making up the bulk of financing sources, regulator scrutiny of banks' balance sheets has added uh, another layer of uh, uncertainty. And in a sense, it, it, turn, it seems that a lot of examiners are applying some of the, the rules from the Dodd-Frank Act, um, uh, which were designed for, for large institutions and large banks, just as strictly to smaller um, uh, banks, local, community, and, and regional banks. And given the uh, public comments made by the Federal Reserve over the past year about the fact that commercial real estate seems to be overheated, it's obvious that regulators have been paying very close attention to commercial loans, which it turns out from our members' responses is actually uh, impacting uh, investment volume. Do you expect any changes with these regulations with a new administration in place? So we obviously have had uh, the administration uh, publicly uh, express an interest in um, tapering some of the regulatory burden. Um, we're yet to, to see some of that translate on the, on the financial side in actual changes. But we have also heard uh, from the regulators themselves, the FDIC, the Office of the Control of the Treasury, they've released statements this year um, recognizing the fact that Dodd-Frank has placed undue burden, particularly on the smaller banking institutions. And they did express, again, as I said publicly in their statements, um, a desire to work with these institutions to actually remove some of that burden, um, likely in a sign that they've even recognized that this is impacting some of the activity in those markets. And George, is some of this also impacting underwriting for commercial loans? Is it harder to get a commercial loan right now, or is it relatively easier than it was a few years back? That's a very good question because we've we've tracked bank underwriting and we've seen um, across the board bank underwriting loosen, you know, 2011 to about 2015. At the small cap end. We've run this survey now for about seven years of, of our members based on which the report um, the data uh, stems. And what we noticed is that uh, lending and underwriting standards, lending conditions have actually tightened. Uh, last year, they tightened for about 33% of members. Uh, this year, those uh, tightening uh, of underwriting standards reached 37% of 
of members. So obviously the conditions are, are getting uh, tighter. And what would you expect moving forward for the next year or two related to um, underwriting and the, the impacts of these regulations on banks? What should practitioners think about headed uh, our way? So I think that at least for 2017, uh, as I mentioned, regulators on one hand recognize that small community banks are, are um, having a hard time and actually are having higher costs just trying to comply with some of these regulations. So they are trying to improve that situation. But given all the other priorities um, uh, on the administrative side, on the regulatory side, I expect this scrutiny to actually continue through the rest of the year. So I don't expect any easing in, in, uh, in actual underwriting standards. Um, what will happen in 2018, I think, largely depends on, number one, uh, the economic act, level of economic activity, both globally and in the U.S. Um, and number two, it will also depend on the, um, the actual market conditions uh, in the U.S. So far, our members have actually reported cash flow. So the NOIs have been uh, rising constantly over the past six to seven years on commercial properties. So there's obviously not a cash flow uh, concern as much. Um, but obviously, banks are feeling a little heat. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens moving forward, and especially with uh, rates, uh, with the Fed raising rates, how that's going to impact uh, commercial loan rates and, and borrowers, and, and ultimately how it may impact values and cap rates moving forward. So we're going to have to take a short break. and we get back, I'm going to ask George about that, and let's look at uh, what rates might do uh, moving forward. So stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease commercial real estate? You're invited to contact Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Call 404-876-1640 or visit bullrealty.com. Video is powerful. Some of the biggest brands in commercial real estate have trusted us to tell their story. We are Barnes Creative Studios, Atlanta's premier commercial real estate video services. BarnesCreativeStudios.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. We appreciate you being with us today. We're talking about commercial real estate lending, and our guest is George Ratu. He's Director of Quantitative and Commercial Research with the National Association of Realtors. And we're on Skype, and we're talking about their report, Commercial Real Estate Lending Trends 2017. And, and George, one of the things our listeners and viewers ask us about, and uh, I guess everyone's curious about, is what's really going to happen with the Fed's rate moving forward? You know, they, it seems like I hear conflicting things. We're going to raise it a couple times this year and two or three times next year, and then we hear, well, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> what do you expect moving forward, and how might it impact commercial real estate interest rates? Sure, and, and you're right. That's actually been the, the question of at least the last, uh, you know, two, two and a half years. Yeah. What is the Fed going to do? And when you looked at, at the Fed's uh, statements during 2016, so last year, um, they, were, they were obviously quite cautious and there were speculation they will, they'll have a, maybe a rate increase in June, maybe one in September, but we didn't have anything until December. 
And even that was historic. It wasn't only the second rate increase in, in a decade. Um, but at the December uh, meeting of the FOMC, we, we had, in essence, the, the chairwoman state that 2017 will see several additional rate increases. In March, we obviously had uh, sort of a response to that. We, we saw another quarter basis point increase. And right now, I think the consensus is that this year we're going to see maybe a couple more. Um, the uh, the Federal Reserve is obviously uh, confident in the performance of the economy. They obviously looked at employment, economic performance, at inflation, and at least on the two main um, uh, indicators that they, they publicly uh, state are concerned, the unemployment and the inflation, we are in the target area where they consider raising interest rates. Interestingly enough, since we talked a little bit about global investors, globally speaking, some of the other central banks around the world are still very much engaged in monetary easing. We're actually seeing very low rates at central banks in Japan and some of the central banks in Europe, Switzerland, Germany, where the rates are still near the, 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 the zero lower bound. So the Fed is somewhat um, across advanced economies um, divergent. And I think that speaks well to the strength of the US economy, first quarter uh, weak GDP numbers notwithstanding. So. I think that uh, from, from NAR standpoint and the realtor standpoint, we're expecting the Federal Reserve to, to basically increase the, the rate. So short-term rates should likely reach about 1.2%, 1.4% .2%, uh, this year, um, and then um, another uh, basically one6 or so by next year. How that's going to translate into uh, long-term rates, uh, which obviously are a lot more impactful for commercial practitioners. That's obviously a whole different uh, question, in part because the short term and the long term don't move in lockstep. And we saw that with the 10-year Treasury. Uh, it certainly had a, a post-election bump. Uh, December, it uh, closed at about 2.5%. It has since retrenched, and first quarter was averaging about 23 um, And given that the cap rates are still about 6.8% uh, on average uh, in large cap markets, and based on our um, members' data, 7.5% in small cap markets, we still have a spread um, well in excess of 400, 400 basis points. So what would you expect cap rates to do moving forward? If we're going to have those type of rate increases, what would you expect on average uh, around the country we might see for cap rate increases? And, and would you maybe see a higher cap rate increase in some of these smaller markets on some of the small cap properties? I think that's a very good and 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 uh, astute question, mm -hmm. in part because looking at cap rate movement, so in in sense investors' approach to to valuating risk and properties, uh, large cap markets have practically been flat. The national cap rate, based on data from Real Capital Analytics, has been at 6.8% uh, for several quarters, including the first quarter of this year. Um, in my view, and again, cap rates and 10-year treasuries or long-term uh, rates don't move in lockstep, um, but I would expect cap rates to actually start moving up probably in the 10 to uh, probably 30 basis point range. For some property types, even first quarter was actually noticed a small bump in cap rates, about 10%. So I would not be surprised to see for the rest of the year, um, uh, again, depending on property types. Um, another 20 to 30 basis point increase at small cap uh, market space. Um, so in, in those secondary tertiary markets, um, the cap rate has been hovering about 7.2, 7.4% for the better part of last year. The first quarter data showed an increase to 7.5, uh, 
again, across all property types. So I think that in the smaller space uh, and for certain property uh, types like retail, we're going to see a, a bounce in that cap rate uh, that is likely to be probably in the 20 to 50 basis points uh, going forward this year, particularly because in some of those small markets, um, the some of the, the the broad trends like the retail retrenchment uh, are being felt much more uh, strongly. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, you know, we're brokers, uh, so maybe we're a little bit of, of the front line, and we're realtors. Um, we're already seeing. Um, cap rate increases on single tenant net lease properties which most of those are you know that small cap they're they're three million to to eight or nine hundred thousand dollars even and we're starting to see that uh asking prices uh cap rates are, are starting to increase now of course as you mentioned it's going to vary for different property types but on these some of these single tenant net lease deals um, there's flat leases or there's no increases for four or five years so it may impact those properties a little uh a little sooner right I think so. And in fact, simply talking to, to members, it, just like you mentioned, um, basically triple net uh, properties show up, single tenant properties show up because, um, again, not all markets are the same, not all property types perform the same, but to, to stay with, with retail for a second, um, while in, in large urban centers, let's say, uh, you know, a few Sears stores closing is not going to ripple too, too broadly into the larger market. For a lot of small and especially rural markets, the closing of a Sears, the closing of a JCPenney, in essence, that being the, the main tenant of, of possibly the, 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 the mall in the area, in a sense, spells the demise of that particular mall. So obviously, the entire ecosystem around that, uh, whether it be fast food restaurant or, or otherwise, is likely to feel uh, the impact of that much more disproportionately, in a sense. Yeah, that's a good point. And, uh, you know, I hadn't really thought of that, those... Uh single tenant net lease properties that are national credit tenants, they're typically low cap rates, but some of those will be in those markets where they're small enough that there's a major impact that all the people from those uh, large geographic areas that may come to that small market to shop just aren't coming there anymore. Exactly. And and I think, you know, a lot of talk about electronic commerce obviously impacting this. Um, but to me, uh, it was an interesting tipping point when, when we started seeing information in major news outlets, even this past year, that shopping habits of consumers on Amazon's own website uh, started shifting towards everyday items I mean, to the point where, for example, people are shopping for detergent, for um, paper goods on Amazon, something that normally they would go to the grocery store or to, to the big box retailer in, in their town or the region. Um, so it's obviously that there are forces now putting a lot of pressure on some of these property types. And I think we're going to see that being translated into valuation and obviously into the, the, the cap rates that uh, investors are willing to, to basically uh, pay for some of these. Yeah, well, that's interesting because, you know, one of the stable uh, property types there in retail has been grocery anchored centers. And you're talking about some of the staples that, that could bite into that a little bit. And um, I think another question our listeners and viewers have is the Trump impact, the new presidency. What should we expect for commercial real estate moving forward? What should we expect for lending moving forward? Stay with us. We'll be right back with that from Georgia, too. And this segment is brought to you by Excelligent, building data everywhere. Visit Excelligent.com and stay with us. 
Are you in commercial real estate brokerage? Check out Apto. Created by and for commercial real estate brokers, Apto is the leading web-based platform for managing relationships, properties, listings, deals, and back office. Visit apto.com slash CRE show. Check out Valuate, a real estate analysis program that can be easily shared with colleagues online to do what-if analysis. Visit GetValuate.com. That's GetValuate.com. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. This segment is brought to you by Valuate Online Investment Analysis Program. Visit GetValuate.com. My guest is George Ratu. He's Director in Quantitative and Commercial Research at the National Association of Realtors, and he's joining us on Skype. And, George, I think one of the things that people are maybe excited about and maybe they're afraid <laughs> of our new president uh, Donald Trump and a lot of the things that he is say he's going to do with uh, you know you have tax reform uh, and and I think when you talk about tax reform to start off with um, you know that could impact uh, uh, business in a big way and therefore commercial real estate absolutely uh, you're quite right and in fact not only do we have uh, a new president but I, I remember some of the folks were surprised back in November to realize that they woke up to a whole new Congress, <laughs> um, which I think is significant because obviously we have a Republican-controlled Congress. And last time we, we had a one party in 2008, uh, first time President Obama was um, elected and we had democratic control of both chambers of uh, Congress. So obviously the expectation um, uh, is that the White House would be able to much more easily work with the existing Congress to impact legislation as well as their regulatory environment. And so at least from the uh, the stated goals of the administration, we are expecting uh, a lessening in the regulatory burden. We're expecting uh, tax reform in ways that um, in a sense are, are trying to be more pro-business. Uh, to also lessen the taxation bur burden on the corporate side. Um, so far, here we had was to uh, modify the Affordable Care Act. In fact, initially, we, the, the, the Republican Party was, was talking about repealing it. Then they tried to modify it. That didn't really go anywhere. So uh, with all the other issues currently on the table, uh, it's obvious that uh, 2017 may not be as successful for uh, for um, the administration as initially anticipated. However, that being said, you're absolutely right. We have a tax reform blueprint, which the House Ways and Means Committee has put forward um, on, on the House side, which calls for major um, uh, impact to uh, obviously the economy through uh, restructuring of the standard deduction, taking a look at the mortgage interest deduction, looking at more uh, important for commercial real estate, the section um, uh, 1031 like kind exchanges, but also introducing the idea of immediate depreciation for a lot of new buildings. So there are some interesting proposals. It remains to be seen how many of these will actually uh, turn into reality. Obviously, uh, Section 1031 is a very important part of the commercial real estate um, environment right now for our members. 
basically close to 50% of our members rated in a survey, we, we ran of them a couple years ago, uh, the 1031 as being a, a, an important part of their practice. And I would say that uh, from discussions with them, I would say almost 80% of members are engaged in 1031 transactions. So obviously this is an issue which uh, going forward um, is likely to, to generate a lot of attention. Yeah, I, I think 1031 exchange is important to the overall economy. And you think about, you know, the realtors, but uh, all the impact of the economy around it. If When these properties change hands, if there's construction and there's attorneys and, you know, uh, there's uh, there's so many people involved in these transactions. I think it would be devastating. So what do you think the chances are of there being a change in 1031 that would have any significance? Well, and to your point, before I directly answer it, we actually asked our members, whenever you are transacting a 1031 exchange and someone acquires a new property, what's the impact, particularly in terms of, of improvements? And normally our members say that we're, we're looking at 10 to 15 percent uh, spending in improvements to the acquired property. So to your point, uh, the impact is significant. In addition, this is just the real estate um, side of the 1031. 1031 actually is is used across several industries, uh, basically um, the auto industry, the agricultural uh, industry. So it obviously is much bigger than just real estate. So to your to your point, what is the likelihood? I know that the Congress has. Um, explicitly stated they'd like to see some action on tax reform um, probably by the third quarter. Given some of the uh, the uncertainty and some of what we're seeing um, in Washington, lack of building consensus, um, we might not see anything significant this year. However, the fact that there's a blueprint on the table, uh, the fact that there are active discussions going on uh, is likely to to lead to something. I mean, looking back at the last major tax reform, 1986, um, even with that, uh, there was a lot of discussion, a lot of uncertainty. For a while, it seemed that nothing was going to go anywhere. And yet the, the reform came together very quickly. Um, and, and obviously the changes have impacted the economy and, and the U.S. overall uh, for, for quite a few decades. So on NAR side, we're um, uh, very active in monitoring uh, the discussions. We are active in uh, expressing our members' um, experiences to, to um, uh, the Capitol Hill. In fact, this last week we had the, the, the Realtors Legislative Meetings here in town and our members came from all over the country and met with their representatives, uh, particularly to express their uh, experiences in the markets with some of these regulations. And um, so with that in mind, while the answer is not clear, um, we are obviously staying tuned to, uh, to the changes. Now, we have a lot of listeners and viewers who, who are realtors uh, and also are, are principals and are involved in uh, the real estate business. What's a, the easiest way that uh, their voice could be heard, that they could help if they believed abolishing 1031 or substantially changes it could uh, be detrimental to the economy? Well, frankly, the easiest way is to contact your, your local representative. Um, uh, and obviously, that's quite easily. They all have local offices. They all travel between Washington and their local offices. Uh, being able to, to simply contact them, write a letter, go visit them, uh, sit down and, and talk with them about um, the importance of the 1031 and some of the other uh, issues surrounding tax reform for their uh, business and obviously for their communities, just as importantly. Yeah. Well, George, there's a lot of other things that uh, uh, 
Trump is saying he's going to do, repatriation. Uh, you know, we're talking about infrastructure spending, uh, as you mentioned, uh, tax reform, reduced corporate and uh, personal taxes, uh, and then the regulatory changes uh, that, that kind of some of that has kind of already started. So of all the things that you're hearing that that he might do, uh, what are the most important things you think that could impact the commercial real estate industry? Well, I would say that on one hand, um, the corporate tax rate could could have a tremendous um, implication as part of of the tax reform. Um, uh, however, the caveat there is that uh, that repatriation, while good for for some of the largest uh, companies, and ideally uh, we'd expect that to translate into capital investments here domestically. Um, will likely, at least under the current blueprint, impact some of the pass-through entities and the way uh, their rates are calculated. Um, but just as importantly, I, I view um, some of the proposals on, on the table right now, um, like the immediate expenses of, of new building acquisitions, to have a potentially beneficial impact. The trouble is so much of the tax code is interrelated that I think the, the the most difficult things to account for are unintended consequences. <laughs> so we have rules, we make regulations, we try to to basically account for for all the things we expect might happen. But as we learned in 1986, um, any change will have unintended consequences economically and, and very much for on the business side. And I think that's, that's one of the areas uh, which leaves a still a big question mark going forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good point. And uh, so what do you think about Trump's nationalism, the hire America, buy America, you know, bring your funds back into America? How might that impact our economy and commercial real estate uh, moving forward? Well, in, in that sense, um, the uh, the nationalist nationalism is part of a broader trend. You look at Europe, you look at Brexit, you look even at the French election, which concluded just a, a few weeks ago. Um, there was a lot of momentum um, towards the, this this inward-looking approach. Um, but I will point out that uh, both the U.S. and and most of the uh, the large, well-developed economies around the world are extremely interrelated and, and, and cross-linked. And I'll give you just one example. Uh, and that is you think of what makes an American domestically produced car. And traditionally when you said, you know, buy an American car, it meant buy a Ford, buy a Chevy, buy a Dodge. Well, nowadays, basically you have um, cars from uh, foreign manufacturers being completely not only built, but sourced from domestic manufacturers. And I'm thinking here of Toyota has plants in Kentucky, Honda has plants in Ohio. BMW's largest plant in the world is in South Carolina. And it's it's reached such a point where basically BMW, which traditionally imported cars into the US, set up this factory to um, supply the US market. They are so successful that they are exporting now BMWs from the South Carolina plants to overseas markets. So in that regard, when you say buy American, what exactly does that mean? Right. Because buy American just as easily can mean buy a BMW because it supports not only factory workers in South Carolina, but the entire ecosystem of suppliers in South Carolina, Tennessee, North Carolina, and the entire surrounding area, all of which have been set up in the last decade or so to basically um, uh, help the manufacturing process. And like that, we, we see examples across so many industries. 
Yeah. Well, I have some other questions for you, like EB-5, you know, some changes there. That seems to have helped commercial real estate. There's some changes there. So if you will, uh, stay with us. We'll be right back after a short break with uh, George Ratu with NAR, and we'll ask him his opinion of what's going to happen moving forward there. Stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Build out the best all-in-one marketing tool for your brokerage. Learn how you can create marketing materials instantly and streamline your property listings process. Visit buildout.com. Hi, this is Michael Ball. Check out Plum Lending, the one to $25 million commercial real estate specialist. Plum offers you speed, certainty, and preferential terms because it's all driven by technology. Visit GetYourPlumLoan.com. That's GetYourPlumLoan.com. Excelligent, the resource professionals like CCIMs, CBRE, JLL, Colliers, and Bull Realty use for market intelligence. Commercial Search is the site to market and find available properties to buy, sell, or lease all over the country. Visit CommercialSearch.com. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. This segment is brought to you by Plum Lending. You know you can get a commercial real estate loan online. Visit GetYourPlumLoan.com. Well, my guest is George Ratu. He's Director of Quantitative and Commercial Research with the National Association of Realtors, and they've come out with a new report, Commercial Real Estate Lending Trends 2017. And, and, and George, I think a lot of people are curious about some of the other changes that uh, maybe Congress and our president uh, may do. And one, there's been some talk of adjusting uh, EB-5. And if you'd like to briefly describe EB-5 uh, to some of our uh, listeners who may not be familiar with it, but, but also some changes could impact uh, commercial real estate, right? Indeed. Indeed, Michael. And the EB-5 is, is um, a program whereby foreign investors can um, uh, put money into the, the U.S., invest the money into the U.S. with restrictions and certain conditions in exchange for uh, permanent residency in the U.S. It's been referred to as sort of, a, you know, um, money for green card uh, by a lot of, of um, folks. Uh, but it has been particularly um, uh, popular with some foreign investors. In addition, it turns out that it has... Uh, offered quite a bit of capital for um, real estate investments over the last few years. Um, it's been, uh, again, given the conditions and some of the restrictions, uh, the money is supposed to go to these regional centers, which then uh, ensure compliance and the distribution of funds. The, the money have to generate certain number of U.S. jobs and be in the country for a certain period. Um, so obviously there are some hurdles to it. However, a lot of folks and critics um, in, in capital on Capitol Hill and throughout the country have been concerned about uh, some perceptions of abuse or uh, perhaps uh, a lack of enforcement. Um, so going forward, uh, what is it that we can expect? Um, that it, it sort of uh, you know goes along with with the theme for this year of. How much are we going to see in terms of results from the current administration and Congress, given how much uh, they're trying to accomplish and how long their agenda is? So given tax reform, given all these other things, is EB-5 going to be also modified? It is up for reauthorization this fall. So obviously, there's some sense of, of a deadline for the program. 
Um, and there's been discussion about raising the, the threshold. Um, basically, it's been about half a million dollar investment. Uh, folks are looking at uh, raising it to a million or possibly more. But again, I see the likelihood of that about in the same vein with some of the other um, initiatives that Congress is working on. Yeah. Well, it should be uh, interesting because I think some investors have made good use of uh, the funding for their capital stack with EB-5 financing from, from these foreign investors. And uh, um, so you mentioned earlier in the show about foreign investment in the U.S. So what do you expect moving forward uh, this year, next year uh, for volume there? Very good question. And frankly, my expectation is that uh, that foreign investment is likely to continue to flow into the U.S. And as I touched earlier, um, I think a, a lot of that basically is, is driven by two main factors. Number one, and that's what I mentioned earlier, global um, basically debt yields um, are very low. We're talking, if you look at the European Union, with the exception of the Bank of England, some of the other central banks are offering in the zero to 0.5 percent um, rates on, on long-term government debt. Uh, same thing with, with Bank of Japan. So for a lot of investors who are looking for better returns, um, and, and this is where the second factor comes in, and safety. So they're looking not only for returns, but safety of capital. The U.S. makes a, a very compelling um, case. Uh, number one, we have very uh, strong legal system, so property rights are, are obviously uh, important. In addition, when you look at the economic performance, while moderate over the last six to seven years, it, um, it still has grown, employment continues to be strong, and in tandem with that, the performance of commercial real estate assets has uh, been solid. So you're looking at large cap markets, 6.8% cap rates. Let's assume they go to, to seven and in small cap, let's assume they go to um, um, you know 8%. Uh, even in a rising interest environment, that is obviously a much better return than you're likely to get more or less risk-free. And when you consider that for most foreign investors, their purchases of these assets are made practically all cash, um, cost of funding is not as big of an issue. Right. You've mentioned before um, the, the multifamily market, and I think a lot of the listeners or viewers uh, uh, may have some concern. You know, it's had a great run. It's, it's just been an incredible uh, sector for rate growth and for occupancy growth and, and uh, value increases. And um, one of the things that uh, seemed to impact it, and I want to get your opinion on it, is the difficulty for the tenants to go buy single-family homes. So my question is, what do you expect for underwriting for single-family home buyers moving forward? It seems like it's been a little difficult for some buyers to, to get loans. And if interest rates do increase, uh, do more of these people that may buy single-family homes stay in apartments longer and help that sector? That is, in essence, what I would say is a $64,000 question uh, for, for the real estate markets broadly. Um, but simply judging by what we've seen over the past two and a half years, um, I think the answer to that is, uh, is perhaps a continuation of the trend. And what do I mean by that? On one hand, on, on the residential side, uh, to your point, uh, as you said, we have had basically first-time buyers uh, having to compete with investors having to contend at the same time with underwriting standards which require high FICO scores. And we've, uh, in, in conjunction with some of the other federal agencies, we've um, surveyed our members. So 
we know that the average FICO score is quite high, 680 um, and, and above, which traditionally used to be in the basically 650 and below. Um, so when you throw into that same equation the fact that student debt um, has been ballooning, I mean, back in 2000, aggregate student debt in the U.S. was a hair under 90 billion. As of 2016, student debt has exceeded $1 trillion. So you're talking about, indeed, you're talking about first-time buyers coming to the market with an average of $30,000 in debt. But if they have graduate school, which a lot more people are pursuing, if they're doing professional degrees, you can have anywhere from hundred dollars to $300,000 in student debt. So the likelihood of someone like that being able to, to get a mortgage is, is obviously not as high. So you're, you're now talking about, as you did, higher um, interest rates. And I think the answer is the multifamily market will continue to see solid demand for, for years to come. Um, and in a sense, I know a lot of investors have been concerned about the new supply that, that's been coming online in the last year and a half in markets like D.C., San Francisco, Manhattan, which has softened some of the rent growth. Uh, but given the uh, the solid demand, I expect the sector to uh, continue strongly forward. I mean, this last year we had a little over 200,000 units um, net absorption absorbed in the market versus 200 and about 40,000 units um, of completions. Um, but household formation is moving back towards long-term trends. So averages long-term 30 plus years, 1.3 million new households a year. Uh, we obviously took quite a, a bite out of that during the recession, but we're moving towards this, the, those trends and people have to live somewhere. Um, and so in that regard, I think multifamily will continue being a very attractive proposition. And judging by the investment volume, judging by even the cap rates still being paid for those uh, properties, I think investors are are uh, thinking the same thing. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. And we started this show talking about commercial real estate lending. So I'd like to get your opinion on this. It seems like we've had a, a nice cycle here of, uh, what, eight or, or nine years of good times. Um, and we have interest rates that may be starting to rise. If you have, if a listener or viewer has, is getting a new loan, they're refinancing a commercial property or buying a new uh, commercial acquisition today, and they have some options for, for loan rates and terms, uh, if they have the option to get a 15-year term or a 10-year term or seven or five or a three, what do you think? What, what, what would you say to them? My approach would be to, to basically take a, a very uh, close look at their, obviously, investment goals, uh, what, what they're looking for, especially if they're acquiring. Um, and in light of that, um, I would also say broaden your, your search for funding. So as I mentioned, a lot of people go traditionally just to, to, to banks, partly because it, it, it's an easy process. But uh, there are several sources, a lot of which are, are quite active and offer very competitive uh, terms like life insurance companies. The trade-off is they prefer longer, uh, longer terms as you mentioned, 10 or 15 years. However, the trade-off is that you're likely to get in a rising interest rate environment, you're likely to get a much better rate. And just as importantly, depending on your time horizon, what you're getting is basically predictability uh, in terms of, of knowing what your debt service will be. Um, in addition, I'll, I'll mention uh, for some of the members that are active or, or investors that are active in smaller markets, the Small Business Administration has streamlined its um, lending process. So there are two main programs, the 504C uh, and the 7A, um, which are used by, by realtors. Um, 
used to be quite burdensome in terms of the application, the requirements. Uh, there was a reason why a lot of members said none of their clients want to use it. But they streamlined their process, have made it a lot more consumer friendly and faster. So there are some uh, lending sources which traditionally have not um, been on the radar of a lot of, of investors, particularly in smaller markets. But I think they are worth a look. Yeah. Well, well said and, and good tip and, and great information, George, as usual. Thanks for joining us on the Commercial Real Estate Show. We appreciate you being on. Thank you, Michael. As always, it's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to the show on the radio stations or uh, iTunes or uh, watching the show on YouTube with the show website. We certainly appreciate you being with us. And we'd like you to connect with us, uh, comment. Uh, uh, you can see us on YouTube and uh, subscribe. And you can also subscribe on uh, iTunes So uh, and comment on the show and let us hear from you. We appreciate uh, hearing from our listeners and viewers. And until next week. Be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty, Asset and Occupancy Solutions. Excelligent, building data everywhere. Plum Lending, online commercial real estate loans. Get Valuate, online investment analysis. Apto, your entire brokerage in the cloud. Build Out the marketing tool for your brokerage, and Barnes Creative Studios, commercial real estate video production.